Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear from Priscilla Sims Brown, president and CEO of Amalgamated Bank, which is about to celebrate its 100th anniversary, with roots dating back to the 1920s, as a financial safety net for immigrants and female factory workers. Brown is at the forefront of the national conversation about the role of the financial industry in our nation's social issues, financial equity, gun violence, climate change, just to name a few. Brown spoke with my colleague Squawk Box co-anchor Andrew Ross Sorkin at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on July 13th, 2022. Here's their conversation. There is so much to talk about. You have been uh, one of the most outspoken CEOs on so many different issues, very controversial issues, and I want to get to all of those. Uh, Before we even get into that, though, I do want to unpack a little bit of what we're seeing in the economy right now, uh, specifically because of the CPI data that we just had this morning, and really get your your sense of where we are and maybe where we are headed. Well, I I, I can't um, say that I'm an economist or or able to prognosticate, uh, Andrew, but um, it certainly doesn't sound good for the average American, and uh, at least in the near term, as relates to inflation. We're very concerned about that. Uh, As a socially responsible entity, we certainly think that uh, those who are unbanked, uh, underbanked, and otherwise vulnerable uh, stand to, to really be impacted the most by this. And, uh, and, and we're looking at uh, opportunities to help, right. help that. But before we um, go too far into anything, I just want to thank you, uh, Andrew, because uh, you've certainly opened our eyes, dating back to 2018, to some of the problems that we can, within our swim lane, address. Uh, in banking, particularly as it relates to to guns. Well, thank you for that. And and, and we were going to get to guns in just a moment. Before we go there, I just want to ask you this, and it it relates to inflation in terms of how you see it. A lot of people look at inflation actually as a regressive tax, especially on the American worker. Um, But at the same time, when you think about the tools that the Federal Reserve has, in almost a perverse way to try to dampen demand, they have to make everything else more expensive. And how do you think the American public should think about that dynamic? Well, that's a very good question. I think, I think um, it certainly is true that um, inflation spikes um, are potentially a necessary impact here. Um, I, think, uh, I, I think the everyday person, the, the person who uh, doesn't have um, a lot of options and, um, and, and can't make a lot of choices because they uh, spend their day uh, working and they, and they uh, make enough to pay their bills. I think those individuals are really concerned and should be as we go forward. I think it's really important for us to not only look at how we uh, provide literacy for, for that community, but also um, how we do more as a financial services industry right. to support that, that community as we go forward. Priscilla, you focused uh, so much on social issues. And one of the things, and, and, and as you know, I've written about many of those issues and think that they are uniquely important. But some of the latest polling shows uh, that people these days care more about jobs, the economy, inflation, than social issues. And how you think we should all square that? Look, I think that those things are uh, interrelated. You can't uh, ignore what's going on in the economy and uh, think that it doesn't hurt the most vulnerable the most. 
So the social issues that we talk about are inextricably linked to what's happening uh, today in the economy as well. When we talk about uh, a woman's uh, reproductive rights, when we talk about um, the, the economic impact of that, when we talk about what happens to communities when there's gun violence, um, all of these things are, are linked to uh, consumer confidence. They're all linked to people's ability to just uh, survive and thrive. And you, you, you really, what we're helping people to understand, we hope, is that you really can't separate them. Do you see a shift, though, uh, among CEOs in America about speaking out? And the reason I raise this issue is I think over the last several years, there really was a movement taking place in large part uh, lifted by employees who were pushing their executives to speak out on issues like voting rights, on issues like Roe Ro v. Wade, LGBT issues, uh, so many, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and others. And yet over the past, say, 12 months, there appears to have been a shift back, in part because politicians, specifically on the right, uh, have started to use whatever leverage, in some cases economic leverage they have, uh, against those companies. I'm thinking of Disney in Florida uh, and Governor DeSantis, for example. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a great example. I'm sure people are taking note of that and other actions. And look, I think, um, uh, I think every uh, evolution, every change, uh, occurs in steps. We take steps forward. We take steps back. Uh, we generally move in the direction uh, of this of a new change. And I think in this case, um, the Pandora's box is open. Uh, not only did employees and individuals uh, ask of their employers and the and the businesses with whom they do uh, business to to act responsibly, they. They also demanded that you not only talk about it, but you actually take action. And whether that's in climate, whether that's related to all of the social issues we, we've just mentioned, um, in all of these cases, employees and consumers want to see real action. Um, and, and I think that that, over time, will continue. That doesn't oh. mean we won't, at points, have resistance to that change. Um, and it will come from all sectors, and that resistance will have moments of glory. Uh, but I do think, over time, we'll move in the right direction. Uh, you offered some nice comments towards me uh, around uh, some of the coverage of guns and, and those issues that have been confronting the country at the top of uh, this segment. Uh, I, I want to offer them back to you because, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, it appears that you've taken up that cause, in fact, uh, and applied uh, to one of the standards organizations to try uh, to deal with this issue in terms of how uh, guns are financed through credit cards, though thus far unsuccessfully. Tell us about that. Yeah, and I, I want to say that this goes a little bit to your last question in that there are things that all of us can do within the areas that we, we focus in our businesses. In my case, and in the case of those of us in the banking and financial services industry, um, that relates to payments, it relates to card purchases. So um, uh, every uh, entity, every retailer has a merchant code associated with that business. And that merchant code um, doesn't go to the SKU level. It doesn't tell, tell us what you purchased within that business, but it tells you that you made a purchase from a particular type of business. We're all used to uh, and, and actually um, benefit from the use of merchant codes and other um, information, uh, the use of data to prevent fraud, 
to prevent things like human trafficking, um, to prevent mortgage fraud. Um, when you get a, a text message or a call from your uh, bank, either from your, uh, the bank that owns your bank account or from your credit card company that asks you whether or not you made the charge uh, that was just made on your card, that is the result of using intelligence uh, and data in order to uh, identify aberrations or patterns um, that are inappropriate or unusual or worthy of at least the question. In the case of gun stores, there are no merchant codes. Well, there are merchant codes for the hair salon and the shoe shine place and, the, um, and every other retailer. There's no merchant code for gun stores. If we did have a merchant code for gun stores, we could detect patterns that would indicate that there had been uh, something unusual going on. So uh, straw purchases, for example. Right. If, if, if I ask you... Uh, to buy a gun for me and because I can't legally buy that gun, uh, and you do so, and the gun costs $1,000, and $1,000 then comes into your account from me uh, within a day, that's an aberration. And if we saw those patterns, we would file what's called a suspicious activity report. The appropriate legal um, and uh, law enforcement entity would find that and then uh, take action that they would deem appropriate wouldn't be appropriate for us to go any further than that, but at least we would identify that suspicious activity. In the case of a number of these mass um, shootings that have occurred, there were a lot of merchants uh, being, uh, a lot of purchases being made of guns and ammunition right. on credit cards uh, by the perpetrators of these crimes. Thus far, uh, the standards organization has, has denied creating one of these codes. Yes. Um, and we should note that uh, Visa and Amer American, or MasterCard have employees on the board of this uh, that have to approve it. And at least I can suggest in my own reporting of this issue uh, that they have been against creating a merchant category code uh, for uh, gun stores. Do you know why? Well, they've given several reasons. Um, we think every one of those reasons uh, would be something that could be managed. Um, so one of the reasons they give is what about the stores that don't uh, that sell things other than merchant uh, other than guns, guns and ammunition, right. uh, you know, a big box store that sells other kinds of apparel and things, for example. Uh, their concern is that somehow this disadvantages the small store that only sells uh, these guns. We think the answer for that is you can certainly have more than one merchant code, including yep. one for those that are pure play gun stores and those that aren't. Um, so there are a number of ways that we could manage this problem if we wanted to. Are you surprised that there's been this pushback? Because the other component of the reporting that I would uh, suggest is, is the case is that there is such a, an anxiety, a, a political anxiety, frankly, um, by some of the credit card companies and, and even some of the banks uh, about going down this road. Uh, because they are worried specifically in red states that they will be uh, prevented from doing business there. We've seen this now in the state of Texas, for example, uh, that has made it very difficult for City, uh, Citigroup and J.P. Morgan to underwrite municipal bonds, uh, for example, uh, with, without uh, committing to a letter saying that they, um, they, they don't discriminate in any way uh, against uh, guns or anything else. Uh, the state of Louisiana has put together its own bill uh, related to this. So you're starting to see this across the country. Yeah. 
Um, I think those people who are concerned about that should listen to my friends who are legal gun owners. Because what I'm hearing is that people own guns for a couple of reasons. One is sport. Um, when they own guns for sport, uh, or if they own guns for protection, they're doing so in a legal manner. And they want to be sure that, that guns are only used in legal manners. Um, and so I think many of those friends uh, would tell you that they'd love to see a merchant code. They'd, they'd be a lot more comfortable, in fact, feel less pressure um, if they knew that the gun purchases that were made were made legally. I also wanted to pivot the conversation to the issue of unions. Uh, your uh, company, largest shareholder is Workers United, which is an affiliate of the SEIU, uh, of course. And um, there is what appears to be a movement across the country, at least anecdotally, when it comes to headlines uh, for an increase in, in, in the unionization movement. Having said that, the numbers don't support it. Um, and I'm trying to trying to square that circle and understand what we really think is happening right now. Look, I think this is certainly a market where workers um, are concerned about their rights. And we see it not only in the um, uh, proliferation of union votes. We see it in, in, in every way. We see it in um, uh, earnings going up. We see it in uh, unemployment. We see it in the um, movement of people um, uh, among um, employers. So there's a lot of activity going on, and, um, and workers care about making sure that they have right. the quality of life and the uh, compensation they deserve for, for their work. I do think the numbers are going up. Um, you, you have a lot of uh, entities voting for unions. Um, they still have to get through the process, right? They still have to put contracts in place. Those contracts then have to be voted on. So there's, there's a, a little bit of a, a lag effect, perhaps, right. in the pure number of union members. Uh, but I do think the numbers are going up. What, what do you tell skeptics uh, of the union movement? And specifically, a number of them point to, for example, Workers United's efforts uh, inside Starbucks. Uh, this is a company that um, has been remarkably progressive, I think, over the years. Uh, when you look at benefits, I think it is literally in the 100 percent, you know, it ranks 100 percent on benefits relative to, to, to any of its peers and that they have become a target uh, of the unions. And some people look at that and say, you know what, this isn't really actually about uh, making workers life better. This is a, a political power grab to some, yeah, degree, to some degree. Uh, Andrew, this isn't my area of expertise. I'm not involved in the union movement. Uh, we certainly do, and are proud to be a bank that was founded by right. uh, workers 100 years ago uh, who are part of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union. We, we, we're really pleased to have members of uh, Workers United on our board. Um, but I would say that um, I, I think every uh, situation is a bit different. I can't speak to Starbucks specifically. I'm just not involved. I just right. am not knowledgeable. But I would say that um, in, in, in every situation you're going to have, um, healthy conversation going on uh, that in the end will result in what's best for workers, because I think that's where the power uh, base is moving. Let, let me bring it back to then the banking industry, but also ESG, which I think is a, a component part of what your bank is trying to represent. And one of the yeah. things, and it goes to guns and goes to so many other issues, is there's, there's a view among some, and this is probably the critical view, of whether banks should be in the business of deplatforming or debanking is the phrase certain industries um, or certain types of products 
depending on their their social implications and how you think about that. Yeah, look, I think people do care about where their money uh, sleeps at night, as many say, um, and they they do care about making sure that uh, their their investments are are being placed in in ethical places, whether that is uh, related to climate, whether it's related to any number of of, of other areas, um, and I think that. Uh, that is a right that investors should have. I think if you um, are concerned about that, if your values um, are strong in some particular areas, you should have the right to invest uh, and have your money be placed um, to support those businesses. I also think that um, the growth in e ESG uh, reflects really uh, a strong movement toward uh, people caring that uh, it isn't just the return uh, but the, but it's also the quality of the return. And I think as this movement continues, you'll start to see higher returns in these particular areas. How much do you think about your bank and how it, it approaches differentiating itself from a J.P. Morgan or a Bank of America or any other bank in the country when it yeah. comes to the social issues versus the product, meaning how you price a mortgage, you know, what the app looks like, and all, all of the sort of day-to-day -day issues that uh, banks and their customers deal with. Yes, of course. The customer experience is important no matter what entity you are. Customers' expectations around that experience are growing. And, and we certainly face that challenge, as do uh, a number of other banking institutions and fintechs. And in fact, everyone does. I think that that's important. I think the, the changing buyer behavior is really important. It also presents for us real opportunities with um, so much data available to us about customers. We actually have the opportunity to not only serve customers better by looking at a myriad of factors when we think about mortgages, when we think about other um, financial products, but we also have the ability um, to help uh, uh, our customers make better choices. So to the extent that a customer is looking to do something that is um, inconsistent with their, their uh, buying practices, we, we should have the ability to suggest to them that they might do things slightly differently. So I think the, the definition of product is really moving more into service and relationship with our customers. Priscilla, I want to thank you uh, for the conversation, for the work that you're doing, uh, and I look forward to uh, following your progress. Uh, we're at quite a moment, and your, uh, your bank is a microcosm of so much of it. Thank you. Well, we're happy to see everyone else coming uh, to this realization as well. And we think um, we're all better if, if everyone starts to think more about ESG. That was Priscilla Sims Brown, Amalgamated Bank President and CEO. She joined us at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on July 13th, 2022. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share with your friends. You can visit CNBCEvents.com to learn about upcoming events and how you can join us. We'd love to see you there. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening.